It's Wednesday, December 29th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Where have all the restaurant and retail workers impacted by the pandemic gone? Many of them went to work in the marijuana industry. There's now an estimated 321,000 workers in the legal cannabis industry. Workers in this industry say they are finding better hours, benefits, and more opportunities to advance. Abba Batarai, national retail reporter at the Washington Post, joins us for how marijuana jobs have been a refuge for retail and restaurant workers. Next, could luxury mystery boxes be the future of high-end discount shopping? A new solution for selling off overstock and off-season clothing has emerged in these mystery boxes, which can sell anywhere from $700 to $2,000. The only catch is, you don't know what's in the box until you open it. The high-end merch in these boxes is said to be two to three times the retail value of the box, but there is a chance it could always be a bust. This has even spilled over into the online arena with unboxing videos. Jacob Gallagher, fashion reporter at the Wall Street Journal, joins us for what these mystery boxes mean for the fashion industry. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. And at the same time, you know, over the last 25 years or so, we've seen a number of states, the majority of U.S. states, actually legalize medical marijuana and move toward recreational legalization. So this is a booming industry where there has been a lot of demand. Joining us now is Abba Batarai, national retail reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Abba. Hi. Good to be here again. wanted to talk about uh, jobs for a while we had been seeing this exodus of retail and restaurant workers throughout the pandemic for a variety of reasons, right? Things were shut down. People were reevaluating what they wanted to do with their careers. And now we're seeing some data that says a lot of these restaurant and retail workers went to work in marijuana jobs, you know, in dispensaries, cultivating marijuana, all sorts of facets of the marijuana industry. Some interesting numbers, uh, an estimated 321 100,000 Americans are now working in the industry. This is a 32% increase from last year. And I love this. The U.S. now has more legal cannabis workers than dentists, paramedics, or electrical engineers. Tell us a little bit more about it, Abba. You're absolutely right. So it turns out that the legal marijuana industry became an early refuge for a lot of retail workers, restaurant workers, hospitality workers who were laid off at the beginning of the pandemic. Many marijuana dispensaries were deemed essential early on. And so they were one of the few places that were open and hiring. And at the same time, you know, over the last 25 years or so, we've seen a number of states, the majority of U.S. states, actually legalize medical marijuana and move toward recreational legalization. So this is a booming industry where there has been a lot of demand. One of the things that somebody, you know, a lot of people always want when in their workplace is opportunities for advancement. And that was one of the things that a lot of people said that in this industry, since it is relatively young, I guess, comparatively, there were those opportunities uh, versus uh, some of the other jobs that they had. Exactly. That's a common complaint for retail, restaurant and hospitality workers in particular that I talk to is that there's just no pipeline to advance. But the cannabis industry, since it is so new and since it is sort of, you know, so far at least made up by a patchwork of mom and pop shops and a few national conglomerates, but you don't have like the big tobacco companies sort of dominating the space in any way. So it is a lot more sort of on the ground opportunities to advance. One person I talked to who started working at a dispensary last year has been promoted three times already. Like she started just as a sales employee and now she's a manager who manages a staff of nine, does all of the purchasing. And so it's just a very new industry where there are more opportunities to move up. One of the things too, so sales of legal cannabis grew 
60% last year to $19 billion. They say that could be $41 billion by 2025. So sales are booming there. But back on the worker front, you know, workers' rights groups are saying, well, we need to start unionizing these workers. We have to act now to protect these jobs before things get out of hand. Absolutely. That is what unions and worker groups are saying, is that this is a great opportunity to make sure these jobs stay well-paying jobs with great upward mobility. And the comparison that they kept making was that this could become sort of like the manufacturing industry used to be. This could become a pipeline to very strong middle-class jobs. You actually spoke to somebody who used to be a pharmacist for 15 years at Walgreens. He left to work at a marijuana dispensary, finds the pace much better suited to him. He did have to take a pay cut, though. Yes. And actually, I was surprised by the number of retail workers that I talked to who had taken a pay cut to work in the marijuana industry. Just a dollar or two. In his case, it was about 5%. But they said the trade-off was just incomparable, that they were working much more manageable hours. They were sort of valued more. They felt like they had more of a say in their day-to-day than being just a cog in the machine. You know, not everybody is finding the marijuana industry particularly beneficial to them. There were a few people that said it wasn't for them. They tried it out and, and, you know, moved on to something else after. With any industry, there are great jobs and there are crappy jobs. And so I think people obviously have mixed experiences. But one thing that I heard time and again, particularly from brown and black workers, is that they felt sidelined. The legal cannabis industry is predominantly white. And I think they felt like there was a disconnect there between the folks who were in charge and maybe some of the workers on the ground. On the federal level, cannabis is still illegal. How did uh, these workers moving into the industry, how did the marijuana dispensary employers, how did they figure all of that into it? That's sort of a big overarching, overarching theme that you kind of just keep going back to. The workers, the employers, everybody is very cognizant of the fact that what they are doing is still illegal at the federal level. And, you know, one labor economist that I talked to actually made the point that he thinks this is one of the reasons that employers are being extra careful to make sure that the working conditions are good. They don't want any scrutiny. They don't want any upset employees. And so they want to make sure that they can prove that these are good, stable jobs. This industry is growing so fast. I mean, just talking about how many states now have medical and recreational use of marijuana. I mean, this is kind of the trajectory that we're heading towards. And, you know, people, the conversation has always been there about uh, legalizing it on the federal level. You know, we still have to yet to see if, if that'll ever happen. Exactly. And I think that's what everybody is sort of looking to around the corner. But they're also saying, you know, we have to do a lot to lay the framework for a great industry and for good long term jobs now before this becomes a free for all at a national level. Abba Batarai, national retail reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Kind of what you would deem, you know, mildly ostentatious clothing that's designed <laughs> to be worn on the street. It's not necessarily designed to be worn in a boardroom. Right, right. Um, and that clothing is now through these companies being discounted and packaged in a way that the buyer doesn't know what they're getting. Joining me now is Jacob Gallagher, fashion reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Jacob. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me on. Wanted to talk about this new, well, relatively new phenomenon, I guess you could call it, luxury mystery boxes. And this could be the future of discount shopping, uh, you know, with uh, a lot of retail store closures because of the pandemic. You know, a lot of companies couldn't offload some of the items they usually do to other retailers. 
So some companies got together and started compiling items into these luxury mystery boxes. So somebody will buy a box. They don't know what's in it until you get the package. And they do say that some of the items in these boxes could retail for two to three times as much what the box's price is. And you're getting, you know, high-end brands of things in these boxes. So Jacob, start us off. Tell us what this whole notion is about. So this whole notion is kind of driven around this idea that there's a lot of merchandise floating around out there in the retail space in the fashion world. You know, you go to any given store, you know, particularly here in America, and there's sales happening all the time. You hear from brands, they're having promotions all the time. But there's also this kind of cross-section, this kind of world of the fashion space that has all this surplus merchandise. It's kind of, again, just floating out there. And some of that is driven, you know, in the past year by the pandemic, you know, particularly early on in the pandemic, there was a, a significant amount of brands were kind of noticing that, you know, people just weren't buying stuff. Um, there was not a need for, you know, higher fashion items. There was not a need, you know, for, for, for these kind of things that might make a statement out on the street. So these brands kind of saw themselves holding the bag a little bit on, on some of this merchandise. Now, to be sure, this is not a, a, you know, COVID phenomenon. This is a topic that has been within fashion forever. What do you do with excess merchandise? You know, brands produce and they try really hard to produce to meet demand. Sometimes their supply outpaces that. So in the past, you know, we've seen brands, distributors, factories, even, you know, other department stores offloading merchandise or kind of selling merchandise through, you know, a discount retailer like a Century 21 or a Steinmart or, you know, something like the Guilt Group for a time was really quite good at this on the internet. What's happening now is this interesting marketplace where there's a lot of young folks, and I'm going to say young men in particular, because it seems to be, you know, most appealing to men. But but these these two companies, Heat and Scarce, that have emerged in the past year or so, they will market to both men and women. And their focus is really on this section of brands that we kind of call, you know, luxury streetwear. It's brands like Off-White. Casablanca, Rude, Palm Angels, Amiri. And it's kind of this aesthetic of hoodies and bomber jackets and graphically printed jeans and things of this nature. So kind of what you would deem, you know, mildly ostentatious clothing that's designed (laughs) to be worn on the street. It's not necessarily designed to be worn in a boardroom. Right, right. Um, And that clothing is now through these companies being discounted and packaged in a way that the buyer doesn't know what they're getting. So you're buying a box at a certain price tier, you know, that's around $700, it's around $2,000. And in it, you're going to get one to three items or four to eight items, something along that those lines. And really you could open that box and it could be a pair of socks and a pair of jeans, um, or you could open it. And, you know, if you paid a higher tier, it could be a jacket, a sweater, jeans, and, 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 you know, more enticing items there. What really this whole thing is doing is preying on or appealing to rather to, to use a kinder term, what, I would deem to be a real brand bias for this consumer. They want the brand. They're really keen on getting, you know, off-white. They're really keen on getting Palm Angels. And and these brands might not be familiar at all to your listener, but they have a lot of clout within this fashion space, you know, for this certain consumer. So to them, it's like, you know, I will pay whatever. I don't know what I'm really getting. I have an option to select my absolute favorite brand. And these companies say they'll do their best to put one item from that brand on that list in the box. And, you know, if they get a 
know, Rick Owen socks out of it or they're really <laughs> lucky and they get a sweater out of it, they're probably going to be happy regardless. Right. They just kind of want that brand name. And, and at that point, you know, you're just hoping for the lottery, right? You're just wishing that you're going to get some of these standout items and you just don't know what you're going to get. These companies do offer returns. Mm-hmm. The company Heat says they get about 10 to 15% of boxes returned. Scarce says about 5% return rate. So it's not like you're stuck with the items, but if you're going to return something, you got to return the whole box. So you don't get to keep just a little bit of it. And as you mentioned, you know, one of these boxes can be 700 bucks. Another box can be about $2,000. And I would say in this age of we've become as, as internet consumers so used to, oh, you know, free returns and really easy returns and things of that nature. These returns are a little bit complex. You know, they, you have to return the whole thing. You have to pay for the shipping fee. So it is a little bit of a risk. Now to that end, these customers that have bought from these services, they like that risk. They kind of, there's something about that that is really enticing to them. The secondhand market for this form of clothing is pretty robust. You know, you can go on sites like Grailed or eBay or Depop or The Real Real and find these brands and find items from them that are cheaper than retail. They're going to be older items. They're not going to be brand new. They might not have the tags on it, things of that nature. But you can find these brands for cheaper elsewhere. What this whole model does is it has this kind of gamified appeal to it. And one thing that I kind of noticed and and, and that has been, you know, in my reporter's notebook for some time is this idea of unboxing videos on YouTube. And again, it might not be something that your listener is 100 percent familiar with, but on YouTube, there's this whole world of unboxing videos and, you know, they can be for any kind of consumer item. You know, there's a very famous story about a kid, a very young kid who he opens like children's toys and has millions of views. Yeah, Ryan, I think his name is Ryan or something like that. Correct. And you're right. I went through some of these videos, these unboxing videos, the people that are buying it get very excited when they get that one lucky item. There's even a whole thing of people reacting to the unboxing videos saying, well, this one's probably not worth it. Or, hey, you got a handbag and you got something else. It is totally worth it. So it it is kind of uh, has this own online presence of its own. In the end, I just want to ask, though, so what does this say about the fashion economy in this sense? People, like you mentioned, maybe primarily young men are really attached Mm -hmm. to some of these high-end brands. But what else does it signal for the fashion economy? Well, what it signals is, is, is kind of, one, this brand attachment, and this is something that we've kind of been watching in the fashion industry for a while. Uh, you know, you might remember or have, you know, heard tell of, you know, back in the 1980s and, and, and kind of into the, into the 90s a little bit within the high fashion space, people were very logo-driven. There was a lot of logo mania happening. They like to get the brand. They like to show off the brand. They were really keen on that. This isn't quite what we're seeing in terms of, you know, just saying, look at me, I've got my Gucci belt, or look at me, I've got my Ferragamo loafers. There's a little bit higher thought that goes into this. It's it's more like these these consumers are really happy to just buy into the brand vision. You know, whatever they can get from the brand, they know it's going to embody the certain aesthetic that they're going for. And I will say often that aesthetic is kind of coming from somewhere in pop culture or something they've seen, seen on Instagram. You know, they saw someone they like wearing this clothing or, or like wearing this brand and they really want to get in on it. But what it also kind of tells us is this idea that newness might not be a real driving factor anymore. And what I mean by that is, is, you know, contrary to a Century 21 or a Steinmark or things of this nature, a filings basement, Nordstrom rack, you go in and the clothes are laid out pretty poorly. 
and they're not very romantic. You know, you're kind of looking at the bedraggled <laughs> remains of yeah. a couple seasons ago or, you know, a couple of years ago or even a few months ago. And there's really little care. It's like it's gone from that main department store where it was new and shiny to suddenly it's lost all of its luster. What these brands are pretty good at, Heat and Scarce, these two companies, is packaging this stuff and really making it look enticing. Their Instagram's super slick. They've partnered with some, you know, quote-unquote cool influencers that have a big reach and have made these brands kind of seem sexy in a way with, with you know, the way that they're presenting this material, that you know, presenting these items. But in terms of how the consumer is actually responding, you know, I spoke to some of these customers and... In a couple of cases, I would ask them, you know, do you think at all this is strange or this is weird that you're buying used or not used? I'm sorry, you're buying old merchandise that you're effectively buying something that is not, you know, the hottest thing off the runway. It might be a few months old. It might be a couple of years old. And they didn't care at all. Didn't even seem to cross their mind. And I think that that's an interesting reflection of where we've gotten to with where a lot of young people are shopping for this type of clothing. You know, again, there's all of these resale sites and all of these secondhand sites out there. And there's this whole big conversation within high fashion right now that's not about vintage. No one, people don't really like to use the word vintage, but they love using the word archival. You know, it's like we've yeah. gone from like, like, you know, it's all you know, in the branding from and like, repackaging of it. <laughs> it's, it's all in the branding. You know, you go from like antique to thrifted to to vintage and yeah. now we're on to archival. And it's this idea that you're buying this clothing and the fact that it's in the past, the fact that it might not be even accessible now actually has a lot of weight to this right. section of consumer. And this guy I interviewed Devin Knight, one of the customers, he bought, you know, a couple boxes off of Heat, and he had said, you know, what I liked about it was this idea that I was getting something that didn't have to necessarily be new, that, you know, someone might not be able to have. And this was kind of what he was saying was this notion that you couldn't walk into, you know, Nordstrom's or you couldn't go onto a boutique website like Essence right now and see the same clothes. I thought that was really interesting. This isn't even... We're not even talking a year, five years, 10 years. We're talking a matter of months even that this hasn't been in a store. And he was really keen on it because it showed to him that this brand that he liked, it was something that not everyone would necessarily have. Wow. I mean, well, the whole thing is interesting. As I said, I went down the hole of the unboxing videos. It's kind of fun to watch, you know, the excitement yeah. and then kind of the duds that sometimes you get out there. But uh, it'd be interesting to see if, uh, you know, other brands or other uh, retailers, other companies try to pick up some of this model. We are starting to kind of see that in terms of, you know, like particularly for Heat, which has been around for longer, they have had a lot of brands kind of come to them and they've had more open collaborations, if you will, saying, oh, we're partnering with Peter Ackerman or we're partnering with this brand represent out of London. And they're kind of doing it in tandem and out in the open. And it's, it's interesting that they're willing to just say this is happening in real time. Jacob Gallagher, fashion reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. No, thank you for the time. Really appreciate it. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. <laughs> <laughs> 